The reading for this morning is 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1 to 13. And if I speak in the tongues of men and, or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is God's Word. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Matt Fuller, if we've not met. And uh, I have the, uh, what is the great privilege of bringing you um, 1 Corinthians 13 uh, this morning. It is very beautiful, isn't it? Uh, but um, at the same time, it's a bit awkward standing up here and talking about love because some of you know me. And um, <laughs> it's a bit awkward. Let's pray. Let's pray as we begin. Our great God and Father, here is a very, very beautiful passage that may be familiar to some of us. Uh, and yet, uh, as, soon as, we, as soon as we think even shallowly about it, we're undone. Because we are so far from this description of what love looks like. Uh, Father, help us, yes, to understand it, but that isn't very hard. Move us, change us, we pray. So we are closer to the Lord Jesus Christ, who looks like this. Help us to love in this way, we ask. We need your help. Please be at work by your Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. So I don't know who you thought of when uh, this passage was read, 
uh, and uh, all these descriptions of love, and perhaps some of us uh, hear it read and think about uh, our marriages, and we think, yes, do you hear that, darling? Love is patient and kind. Can you imagine what that might look like? Um, how about that? Uh, some of you might think of other family dynamics. You might be sat here this morning and think, yeah, hear that, Dad? Uh, love is not easily angered. Ha ha. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Ha ha. Uh, and others just might think of their workplace and think, oh, yes, that's right. Love does not boast, is not proud, does not dishonor others. I don't think Paul had met my colleagues um, because uh, pride and uh, belittling, that seems to happen uh, a little bit in my workplace. Well, now look, while you can apply this passage to all of those different settings with much benefit, Paul is addressing it to the church and to the church primarily in Corinth, but to us and the relationships and dynamics in a church. Context, of course, is chapters 12 to 14 uh, about how the church in Corinth is using its gifts. They are very, very excited uh, in Corinth back then about their spiritual gifts, what they could do. Uh, that got them very animated. And um, Paul is stressing, well, last time if you heard in chapter 12, Paul stressed, well, yeah, God has given every individual in church gifts to build up others. So you've got to use your gifts and cherish the gifts that other people have got for the sake of others. And in chapter 14, he's very clear, the greatest gifts are the ones which build the church, not just for individual enjoyment. But at the center of this section is chapter 13. The most excellent way to behave in church is, well, it's love. So it's not complicated to understand Cognitively, a passage such as 1 Corinthians 13, its purpose is transparent. Don't get too excited by giftedness. Value love and demonstrate love. Really, the application is chapter 14 and verse 1. Follow the way of love. That's where he's heading. Understanding it, as I say, not too hard. Doing it a bit harder. We'll work through the passage, uh, uh, hopefully at a good pace, uh, and then spend a bit more time on that application in chapter 14. So we're going to go through it like this. Uh, love is not an option, one to three. Love must be displayed, verses four to seven. Love endures forever, verses eight to 13. Therefore, pursue love. Let's see how we go. First then, love is not an option, uh, verses uh, one to three. They basically repeat themselves. Verse 1, verse 2, verse 3 have the same structure. It goes a bit like this. If you have gift X or double gift X, but you haven't got love, you're nothing. So you can have this, that's great, or twice that, amazing. Uh, but if you haven't got love, nothing. So verse 1 starts uh, with the gift they're very excited about in Corinth, the gift of tongues, speaking in ecstatic languages that others can't naturally comprehend. So he says, verse 1, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Well, to speak in the tongues of men, that's these, the languages that people can't naturally understand, that's, that's good. Um, but don't get too excited. What about if you can speak in the tongues of angels? 
Well, no one in the Bible can do that. Not even Paul claims to do that. There's some sort of apocryphal reference to it in the book of, uh, tangentially, it's the book of Job. Stuff gets written, you can read. It's outside the Bible, but Job's daughters spoke in the tongues of angels. It may be some reference to that, but, but no one in the Bible speaks in the tongue of an- tongues of angels. So you can do this, great. You can do that, amazing. But if you haven't got love, well, you're just a resounding gong, a clanging cymbal. My in-laws, in their house, in the hallway, they have a little gong, a little gong. It's not like the rank man with his oiled up chest bashing the um, the six foot thing. It's sort of dinner plate size. And um, in their household, when the children were younger, particularly teenagers, rather than bellow up the stairs, dinner's ready, um, they were just banging the gong a few times. Dong, 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 dong. And it's a a decent sound, so you can hear it through the house. Well, that was okay. Of course, when grandchildren come along and in, the sort of in their toddler years, they just get the thing and go dong, 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 dong. I'll tell you what, after about 15 seconds, that's enough. It's just unpleasant upon the ear. It's just grating. Well, that's Paul's point. If you just, just all you get is the gong bashed relentlessly. I mean, draws attention to itself. Everyone knows it's happening, but shut up is his point. Well, you may be incredibly gifted, but if you don't love others in church, you will be just unpleasant, grating, annoying. Verse 2 makes a very similar point. If I have the gift of prophecy, good gift, and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, well, that's quite impressive, isn't it? You know everything. Or double strength, if I have a faith that can move mountains. Well, that really is impressive. I mean, to know all things, pretty good. To have a faith that can move mountains. Can you imagine that? You know, in the sort of basic Star Wars films, Yoda can move an X-wing. I mean, that's quite a heavy thing. To move a mountain. I mean... You might think at the moment how useful that could be. You think, well, I'd, I'd, I'd really quite like to go skiing, but um, travel's not so good with coronavirus. I mean, some people got it in the Alps. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll just move the Alps and dump them on Heathrow um, because we're not meant to fly anywhere anyway. Great, great. How convenient would that be? Um, that would be quite a gift, wouldn't it? Well, yes, says Paul, but even if you can do that, if you haven't got love... Verse 2, I'm nothing. Not that the gift is nothing, but I am nothing. Paul says, you could be the most naturally gifted person on the planet, but without love, you get zero. No, you are zero. You're nothing. Verse 3, I guess, different, slightly different, not so much giftedness, but, but sacrifice. So verse 3, if I give all I possess to the poor, impressive. Or more than that, give over my body to hardship, or you could translate it, give my body over to the flames, either I'm martyred. So, you know, give away all I've got, that's impressive. I'm martyred. Well, yeah, I guess that's a sort of commitment, that's impressive. But if you haven't got love in doing those things, you... Well, I gain nothing, Paul says. 
a dramatic gesture. Great. But without love, nothing. Meaningless. Don't be impressed by people who are gifted if they don't love. Well, in the last few months, someone know, there's been a, a flurry of a flurry, really, of prominent evangelical leaders being exposed uh, as well, I don't know, abusing their power, bullying. I was very struck by um, uh, one speech that was given in an Anglican setting in a national debate, talking about one Anglican leader. And uh, the person speaking who'd done some investigation into this said, I, I cannot believe how many people I heard the same thing from. We knew he was a bully, but... We knew he was a bully, but the church grew so much. We knew he was a bully, but he did so many useful things on the national stage. We knew he was a bully, but he was very generous with his time. We knew he was a bully, but... And Paul says, you can't do that. You're not allowed to do that. It doesn't count. Anything that comes after the but is nothing, gains nothing, is grating. You're nothing. You can't do that. You can't ignore the first part of the sentence. You can't say in church, oh, we know he's a proud show-off, but no one plays piano like him. You can't do that. We know he has a fierce temper, but... He really makes stuff happen. We know he can be vindictive, but look, he's very generous financially. Can't. Doesn't work. Love is not an option. Without it, you are nothing and gain nothing. Of course, some consider think, yeah, yeah, the leaders, yeah, that's right. And demonstrate precisely the same attitude and show a sort of schadenfreude and a, a gossip. And well, you're nothing as well. You're making nothing out of nothing. It's even worse. Look, for you and me, I don't know. It's such a strong picture, isn't it? Be gifted in so many ways, but if there's no love, you are nothing and you gain nothing. It made me think of a, you know, this sort of Olympic routine, uh, uh, gymnastics at the Olympics. Everyone loves that. It doesn't matter, male or female, but uh, a floor exercise is very impressive. And someone puts in the first quadruple tumble with a pike uh, and, uh, and lands it. And so it's never been done before. It's the most extraordinary thing. Uh, and the crowd are all on their feet. Raptures. It's amazing. And all afterwards, the judges go, 0 0.0, 0.0, 0.0, 0.0. And the crowd are saying, what are you doing? He's got, there's no love. Well, we don't care if he's obnoxious. Look what he's done. It's so impressive. There's no love. That's the sort of truth Paul wants to us to understand in a church setting. Without love, you're nothing. You gain nothing. Love is not an option. But then secondly, love must be displayed. There's a sense in which this is the heart of it, the heart of the passage, verses 4 to 7. Love must be displayed. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. 
all of these verbs, and all the way in this little section, verses four to seven, they, aren't, they are verbs actually, not adjectives. So it's not so much what love is, but what love does. So you could perhaps, it doesn't work as well on the ear, but you could translate it, love waits patiently, love shows kindness, love does not burn up with envy, love does not brag, etc. Because they are all verbs. The point is love does this. It's active. Unless you can see it, it isn't love. Unless it's displayed, manifested, unless there's evidence, it doesn't count. It's got to be seen. It does stuff. Now, there's great value in taking a long time over each of these verbs and, and thinking them through. I think four or five years ago, we spent 10 weeks in chapter 13. Um, uh, we haven't got time to do that today. But... Um, I mean, for all of us, a slow, reflective read through the list when you get home, well, it does much good. Very briefly, though, it starts with two positives, this list. Love is patient, love is kind. Uh, patience is time, of course. Kindness is manner. So patience is I'm willing to give time to people, not give up on people. Uh, I'll give the time to sort out the issue is patience. It's a duration thing. Kindness is tone, manner, how you go about it. Generous, gentle. Then you get eight negatives, the knots. Uh, not random. Paul is addressing the behavior of the Corinthians. So in, if you've been with us as we've gone our way all through the letter, chapters one to four, the Corinthians were boasting of their favorite leaders, Apollos, Paul, Peter. But love does not boast. Chapters 5 to 7, they were taking pride in sexual immorality, but love does not delight in evil. Chapter 8, they were puffed up with knowledge, but love is not proud. Chapters 9 and 10, Paul had to defend himself against some of their accusations, but love keeps no record of wrongs. Chapter 11, you had wives shaming their husbands, the wealthy shaming the poor, but love does not shame or dishonor others. So it's very focused upon them. This is not the timeless description of love, it's quite acute for them then. And then he finishes with the four positives of verse seven. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. I, I'm not certain, I, I think the focus, it always protects or bears up um, if, a, if a tent protects you from the rain, it sort of bears up, it endures, it soaks up a lot of water, it, it protects in that sense. It can absorb a lot, bears up. I think probably is paralleled with persevered at the end of the sentence, always keeps going. And I, I'm not certain about this, but I, I think... Uh, always trusts, always hopes. I think those middle two are introducing faith and hope, which you'll come back to at verse 13. I think he's saying the only way you can bear up and persevere in loving others is if you know, if you have faith in Christ and you have the hope of his return, I think is how it works here. But look, the point is love does this. Love has to manifest itself, display itself, demonstrate itself. 
Jesus says, or said in John 13, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. It doesn't matter what group you go into, every culture, every uh, subgroup, every uh, ethnicity, every religion, every country can produce some moral heroes. Every group can say, look at that guy, look at that woman, they're so loving. They're a hero of love. But Paul says the distinguishing mark of Christianity is that this should be everywhere. Love should be throughout a church, the whole community displaying it. To to put a positive spin on an anxious word, there should be a pandemic of love in the church. It should be ubiquitous, everyone displaying it everywhere. Love must be displayed. So look, love is is not an option, one to three. It must be displayed, verses four to seven. And love endures forever, verses eight to 13. So verse eight, love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they'll be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. Look, Paul's saying, when you get to heaven, or in the new creation, there's no need for prophets. There's no need for anyone to speak. There's no actual need for any of these spiritual gifts. There's no need for preachers. There's no need for insight into God's word because we're there. We've made it. We all know. Now our knowledge is partial, verse 9. But when completeness or perfection comes, I think actually it's complete. It's a perfectly good translation, but I think perfection comes essentially when Jesus comes and remakes this world. We no longer have our dim, partial knowledge. We see it all. We see him. You get these two examples, verse 11 and 12. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. When you're a child, it's okay to think that the most important thing in the world is a squeaky dinosaur. (laughs) And um, that that's the most important thing that there is in the world. And if someone takes it away from you, you'll cry and you'll wail for, for, for... Literally minutes until you forget it. Um, But that's okay if you're a child. When you're an adult, your horizons should have expanded a little bit. And squeaky dinosaurs are are not the most important thing. You can give up on them. You can allow someone to take it without ranting. And Paul says that sort of difference. We're all little children now, but then, then... Oh, then we'll see perfectly. Or the other little picture parallel with it. Uh, verse 12, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we'll see face to face. Which would you rather have, the reflection of the real thing? Um, what would you rather have? Would you rather have a, a, a picture of someone you love or would you rather be with them in their company? You'd rather be with them. And again, that's the distinction he's making now. We, it's as if we just have a picture of Jesus. We just see him 
as a reflection. Then we see him in this highly evocative phrase, face to face. As Moses in the Old Testament saw the Lord face to face. It's a picture or description really, a metaphor for intimacy. And you can try it. You could try it after the service just to get a sense of what it looks like. You can have a conversation with someone, probably someone you know, but not super well, and, and you just hold your gaze in their face. And don't, like we normally do, you talk to someone and you sort of look away, and then you talk to someone and look away. But if you just hold intensely a look into someone's face, and as you're talking, explore their face, go round and round it, they will turn away from you. <laughs> because that's wrong. It's just, it's too intimate. We were talking about spiritual gifts at midweek PTS a couple of weeks ago. Poor girl who was next to me. I'm, feeling de- I'm sure this is inappropriate. I feel deeply embarrassed. But poor cat who was next to me. I said, it's a bit like this. And I did it with her. And after about 15 seconds, she was like, ooh. And then sort of just had to turn. Because you can't. It's wrong. You don't engage. You don't look face to face with someone unless you're really intimate with them. And that's what Paul is saying. Now, what we see in part then, we're face to face. And even verse 13, when you compare love with the other two cardinal virtues of the Christian life, hope and faith, it is the greatest, he says, I mean, all of them experience some change as we go into the new creation, but you don't need to hope in Christ when you're with him. You don't have to have faith in him when you stand before him, but love endures. And so his point in saying this is, why not work on the things now that last into the future? Love is not just a duty upon us. It's our destiny that awaits us. And so it is never a mistake to replicate the love of Jesus in our relationships with those around us. Those loving actions have eternal significance. They have influence. They have benefits that endure forever. And so chapter 14, verse 1, pursue love. Chapter 14, verse 1, follow the way of love. Follow is a bit of a weak translation, I've got to be honest with you there. The the, the verb, the Greek verb, it's used to pursue or persecute. In chapter 15, Paul uses the same verb and says, I persecuted the Christian church when I was a Pharisee. Well, he didn't sort of follow them. He tried to destroy them. It was zeal. It was passionate. It was was full on. That's what he's calling for here. Pursue love. Run after love. Chase it down. Never give up on it. On Tuesday, I I was going to a conference outside of London and uh, had to get the train. I was on a certain train, had my ticket. The next one would have been half an hour later and I'd have paid more. But um, as is my want, hadn't Quite left enough time, probably. Uh, you know, it's just fine as long as you arrive at the platform and the tube is there in one minute. But when it says six minutes, you go, oh, uh, it's got to get a bit fine. And so you just get off tube, you get off the station, 
Uh, you get off the tube and run, uh, and he's sort of running through this, you know, with a bag on his shoulder, running. Excuse me, don't mind me. So sorry, so sorry, so sorry. Uh, ticket barrier. When you, do, you just sometimes does that thing. You put the ticket in, and it just comes up, and you go, "What does that even mean?" Um, you're not making a nasty noise. You just tickets come up, but you haven't opened. What does that even mean? You try it again, and then people are behind you. Like, yeah, I'm in a hurry too. And um, uh, eventually, man comes. Oh, looks all right there. Uh, okay, come on through, and he, he opens the gates for you. Uh, and they sort of just burst through. Beep, 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 beep. Uh, it's all right. My bag is in. Uh, and uh, you squeeze, and the doors go behind you. And then you look at everyone else and say, "Oh, good morning." Um, and you sort of settle down. And I pursued my train. And Paul is saying, pursue love. Pursue it. Chase it. Be relentless. And wouldn't it be lovely if someone said that of your life or mine? Not, I don't know, Kate, she, she pursues money. Richard pursues his career. They pursue their kids' activities. They pursue comfort. But rather, the most striking thing about her is she, pursue, she pursues loving other people. That's what drives her. That's what drives him. What are you chasing after in life? Well, it seems to me you chase after loving other people. I mean, no one has yet to say that to me. But how wonderful that would be. So then before we finish, how do we do that? How do we pursue love? Well, here's a couple of thoughts before we finish. The first is that our decisions do affect our desires. So if we're going to pursue love, you have to choose it. Sometimes you choose, I will go to see that person, though I don't really desire to. I will commit to this group, even though I feel a bit ambivalent. And sometimes our affections follow our decisions. We resolve, and we do, and then we want to, sometimes. Of course, with some people, that's very hard. But most of the time, I think, if you do resolve to pray for someone who is very difficult, you determine to be kind to someone who's very difficult, you do at least grow in sympathy for them. Years ago, reading a 19th century preacher made the observation, be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a battle you know nothing about. I always find that quite helpful. When someone is being very difficult, be kind. Everyone you meet is fighting some sort of battle with who they were, with their childhood, with their upbringing, with what's going on around Yeah, it helps. Sometimes really hard. But often our decisions can affect our desires. You have to choose. You have to choose to pursue love. And then the second would be you have to pursue Jesus. You have to know that his love for you never fails. I don't know what it was for you if you were sort of paying attention closely as this was read. I think as I've worked on it this week, it was really verse 4 that I felt completely undone by. 
Love is patient, love is kind. I'm undone, Lord. Because I just think of times in the last few weeks when I've been a long way from those two. I'm undone. So I did try really hard this week consciously to be kind and to be patient and possibly was a little bit better. But the problem is, in the hundreds of interactions we have with different people in any given day, some of whom are not very nice, um, it's hard to sort of, someone says something, you think, well, let me just stop for a moment and pause and think, what does it mean to be patient? What is it kind? Um, it's quite hard to do that. I, look, I can't just do this. I have to become this. I think we're all the same. You can't say, this week, I'm going to do kindness and do patience. You have to become a person who is kind, a person who is patient. And it happens as we become more like Jesus. And that happens when we hang out with him. We become like people we spend time with. We all know that. So we need to spend time with the man who is love. It's often reflected that um, uh, if you can read this passage and, and not feel any conviction that you fall short, you just delete the word love and put your own name in and that really does it for you. As soon as you do that, you're in a spot of bother. Adrian is patient. Adrian is kind. Adrian does not envy. Adrian does not boast. Adrian is not proud. Oops. But Christy does not dishonor others. He's not self-seeking. He's not easily angered. She keeps no record of wrongs. As soon as you... Sorry, guys. As soon as the, um, <laughs> but you try it. You put your name in and, you, you know, it's awkward. But as is often observed... You can replace the word love with Jesus, and it reads fine. You just say, yeah, that's right. And it's a reminder of how we're treated by him. So you can read verse 4, Jesus is patient, Jesus is kind. He does not envy. He never boasted. He was never proud. He didn't dishonor others. He was never self-seeking. He was not easily angered. He kept no record of wrongs. He does not delight in evil. He rejoices with the truth. Jesus always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, and it works. Verse 8, his love never fails. So even as he was, he was beaten by Roman soldiers, he was patient and kind. Even at his trial, he didn't boast, envy, or humiliate anyone else. Even as he was hanging upon the cross, he always endured always trusted his father, always hoped in resurrection, always persevered for you and for me. And the only way you and I become like this is when we go to him and spend time with him and know that his love for us never fails. I mean, you know that. Then you can pursue love yourself. Follow him and pursue love.
Let's pray together. Our Father, here is a very beautiful chapter, and yet it's devastating. Because unless we completely lack self-awareness, all of us know we fall way short of this description. And we're very grateful that you are indeed patient with us. And even more, that your love for us is a transforming love. That as we do walk with Jesus, you do make us more like him. So, Father, would we be resolved in that direction? Would we be those who do, in your strength, seek to pursue love for others? We're very, very grateful that we see it in part. And as a church family, we do see it in part. And many of us experience the unmerited love of others for us. And it's wonderful. Father, please, more and more, change us into this sort of community we ask. In your strength, through Jesus we pray it. Amen.